Well, good morning. I know I look like I'm always about to play golf, and sometimes that's true, but it's mostly because these are the most comfortable clothes in the whole world to wear, and I want to wear them all the time, even when I sleep. Um, (laughs) So we're in the middle of a series um, called Storied, um, an incredible series. We're working through stories and narratives in the Bible, and there's multiple ways for us to express through art what God is teaching us, and uh, it's very exciting. And I have the privilege this morning to share with you um, about the book of Ruth, which is one of my, well, it is, it is my favorite story in the Bible. That probably sounds unspiritual because I probably should say like the crucifixion of Christ or the resurrection, but I'm sorry, it's Ruth's more important to me. Um, I'm just kidding. It's the gospel we find in Ruth um, that I really enjoy, but I'm just going to pray again. Father, Thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you for all the ways that you bring truth to us through your word. There's, there's proverbs for us to live by, just wisdom. There's poetry um, that we can relate to. There's gospels where we learn about details of your life and your sacrifice. There's, there's teachings and sermons and speeches like the book of Hebrews, God. And there's also these narrative stories, God, that that are just a real blessing to us because we can relate um, to stories and um, to see how you work in the lives of people and how you also work in our lives. And God, I pray that this morning as we look at the book of Ruth, God, that in the, the lives of the characters in this true story that we would also learn how you interact in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the dead of night. Dark and a little cold, because the threshing floor is open-aired. Scattered throughout the animal-packed earth are men, sleeping hard from both exhaustion and in all likelihood a little alcohol. She walks silently through their bodies, headed to the grain piles, where her last hope lies. The story of Ruth has both the making of a Hollywood movie but it's also filled with the most everyday experiences. And maybe that's why her story has always fascinated me. The redemption, the romance. You know, this is better than Hallmark Channel, guys. Ruth, we're going to get to it. Buckle up. (laughs) It's better than Hallmark Channel. Um, But the redemption and the romance alongside this need that Ruth has to survive through life. You ever felt like you needed to just survive through life? There's more to relate to in her story than we might initially see. So if you'll turn to Ruth chapter 1, we're going to not going to read the whole book of Ruth this morning. That would be my whole sermon, but that you know, it probably would be just fine. Um, but I believe God has put some things on on mine and actually my wife Corey's heart. We worked on this together. It's very good. But we're going to pull out just pieces and work our way through this story. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
They married Moabite women, one named Oprah, just kidding, Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So here's where things really begin to go south for Ruth. She's left in a culture where she has little to no opportunity to earn income and a mother-in-law in even worse circumstances than her. Ruth still had the option for remarriage, for provision. You know, there weren't a lot of ways that women in this culture, unfortunately, could get by. You know, getting married was like the way that you were provided for. And if, you know, something terrible happened like your husband died, you, you either could go home to your family and be taken care of by your father while he was alive and hopefully older brother when your father died. And if you didn't have that, um, you, you begged or you prostituted. Those were the only two options. And you can imagine at this time they're in Moab. This is, this is a, a culture that would have been far worse even than being in, in the land of Israel as far as how they treated women. But Ruth still had the, the option for remarriage, but being past childbearing years, Naomi could not do that. She was in worse circumstances. And the backdrop of all this is famine. There's nothing to eat or very little to eat. And without a doubt, this is not the life Ruth had expected. And while death was more common day reality in the Old Testament times than in our day, to lose three men in a household must have really felt like blow after blow. (laughs) That sickening feeling of grief on top of grief, of of experiencing grief and, and not even really having it time to heal from that before the next hammer comes down in your life. Naomi knows her only hope is to return to Israel where there is a biblical command for her to be cared for in her community, but the outlook is still very bleak. You know, Naomi knows in Moab, they they cannot stay there. Um, You know, but in Israel, at least they're commanded to do the right thing. (laughs) So she decides to go back to Israel and see what could happen. Verse eight in chapter one. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And both at this point, Orpah and Ruth are both arguing to stay with her. Verse 13 The second half says this. She says, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Have you ever felt like that? If you haven't yet, there's probably going to be a time. Because we don't always see through the eyes of God the circumstances in our lives. There's probably going to be a time like this. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. You hear that, that resentment a little bit towards God? You know, she's like, I just, I just don't have time for you, God, in what I'm experiencing right now. 
So here's where our church upbringing may have taken us in our view of these three women, right? Naomi becomes a caricature of a bitter old woman, negative and feeling sorry for herself, and she doesn't have enough faith in God, right? Poor Naomi, or curse Naomi. How dare she say, go back to your gods? How dare she say? Where's her faith when she says, God has abandoned me, right? Or even worse, that God's hand is against me. And that's how we're taught to see her, the woman who lacked faith in God and who's bitter. Orpah isn't mentioned much, but by nature of comparison with Ruth, Ruth, she's seen as a self-serving woman who cuts and runs, right? We're like, how dare Orpah, (laughs) you know, just, just take off and leave. And then Ruth, Ruth is cast as the epitome of a godly woman, sensitive, emotional, demure, and most importantly, submissive. And this is how we tend to see them. We see Naomi as the bitter old lady with no faith, Orpah the one who cut and wrung, probably ran back to a pagan paganism, and Ruth as the one who's just submissive, quiet, shaking and afraid. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, where you're going, they'll be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging here. So let's pause here for a moment and go back to Naomi within the context of her circumstances. With a span, within a short span of time, her husband has died and both of her sons have died in a foreign land. Last spring, Corey and I have friends that we've been friends with for 16 years. We knew them before we even got married. And, uh, you know, we started, the, the, the you know, we, we ministered together at a young church and you know, we went through like having kids about the same time. Our kids were friends. We never, as much you be friends when you're this big, you know. Um, just playing around, and we've known them for a very long time, been close to them for a very long time. And this last spring, their oldest son died in a swimming accident. He was 16 years old. He was just swinging on a rope swing with a bunch of people in the river, and he didn't come back up till somebody went and got him. And we've seen the aftermath of this loss. Our friends are absolutely broken. Their days are a mess of complete devastation, anger, and confusion. And the honest admission of, I don't know how to survive this. I don't know if I will survive this. For them and and others, I know, but for them, it's really hard to sing a worship song at church that says, God will never let me down. It's not because this statement isn't true, but it's heavily nuanced. It doesn't mean we will always agree with God or that God's best is always what's going to happen. We know better than that. In ministry, there are times that it's really hard to know what to say to people who are going through pain and grief. Those times I learned it might be better just to sit and be there 
and say nothing. Just to be present the way that God is always present with us. Naomi was no different from any one of us. Her time in history being a long time ago doesn't change the human reaction to grief. When we see her in this context, we realize Naomi doesn't really deserve judgment or our critique, right? She's a deeply hurting woman, and throughout Scripture, we see the Lord's compassion and closeness to the brokenhearted. God wasn't sitting back asking Naomi where her faith was. God isn't turned off by confusion or even threatened by our anger. And likewise, Orpah did what was customary in her circumstances, right? She'd lost her husband. Her world had been upended. And so she went home to her parents' household. How many of us would do the exact same thing? I don't know that I'll ever let Chrissy leave. And if she does, something like this happens, I'm going to go rent a U-Haul. I'll I'll be on my way there. She'll be like, Dad, I'm 45. I'll be like, it doesn't matter. My geriatric behind is about to pick up your dresser and bring bring you home. (laughs) Her actions don't speak of anything sinister or godless. Just a woman returning to her family. But Ruth didn't leave. And that becomes the wonder of this story. Why didn't she leave? It would have been perfectly understandable if like Orpah, she left. Makes perfect sense. Dad shows up in the U-Haul, you go, you know? But what caused her to cling to Naomi this way that she did? There's a few reasons. Perhaps her previous life before marriage had been harsh and dysfunctional. She didn't have much to return to. That's a possibility. It could have been her deep love for Naomi and that Naomi was the last tangible connection Ruth held to her dead husband. Or it may have been her following the Lord that she had come to know through her in-laws. Maybe she just had this God-given feeling that she would be needed and that God had a plan for her life still. It's a hard thing to hear in the middle of grief, but maybe she heard it. Whatever the reason, her commitment to stand by Naomi shows a fierce strength. If this was a Hollywood scene, Ruth's often portrayed as a veiled, shaky voice woman as she pledges a commitment to follow her mother-in-law, her eyes lowered, resigned to her submissive fate. Corey and I watched this documentary. I think it was on Hulu if you want to check it out. But it was called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. It's about Warren Jeffs, weird dude, um, who led a Mormon cult, a polygamist cult. You know, and that was one of the things that they would always say to the ladies was keep sweet, pray, and obey. You know, that was the expectation. Warren Jeffs' father even had on the bottom of his shoes was written keep sweet, So when he sat in a chair, he could just put his feet up like that and just remind every woman in the room where her place was, right? Keep sweet. Sounds like a Baptist church. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, 
You guys are only allowed to speak on Sunday mornings, not preach. Um, keep sweet, pray, and obey. But what actually seethes through the pages of Ruth is a fierce strength. Her words have much more the imagery of a warrior suiting up for battle. Where you die, I will die. That's not quiet, passive, submissive, pitiful. That's strength. That's warrior strength. That's determination. That's I know the decision I'm making and stop trying to tell me not to make it. And this is the same energy Ruth continues to bring as her story progresses. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. This comes from an Old Testament command. The Israelites were commanded um, two things. One was to leave the edges of their field um, un, un, you know, um, unharvested so that the poor in the community could come to any field on the edges and get food to eat. And they weren't allowed to make a second pass. They were only allowed to go over the field one time to glean, and whatever was left was left there for the poor. And, you know, this is one of the reasons probably that Naomi went back to Israel, and Ruth learns this, and she's like, let me do that. Let me go get food for us. We need food. Let me go glean in these fields. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, and the Lord bless you, they answered. You got to be a pretty good boss <laughs> to say to, you, to to show up at work at the factory and be like, hey, the Lord bless you guys, and for them to be like, no, God bless you, right? You know, it's like, gosh, he must have given raises on time, and I'm not just talking cost of living here. So... <laughs> Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Ruth continues to face the harshness of her life with the set jaw of a survivor. Right? She's out there gathering food. She's taking a short smoke break. I'm just kidding. She's taking just a quick break. And then she's continuing to work, to get as much work as she can get done. Life's not easy for Ruth. She's a foreign woman working out in the fields in a male-dominated vocation, by the way, basically just to get by day by day. And she's walking a dangerous tightrope, but without other alternatives. She can't, she can't dwell on the what ifs. She just has to do what needs to be done. And someone is going to notice. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Boaz knows one thing, that working out in the fields is very dangerous for a single young woman. Right? He's got a lot of workers out there working. Some of them are Israelites. Some of them are not. You know, and all of them are sinners. <laughs> you know, and women would, would often get raped and abused in that kind of an environment. And Boaz knows this. So he tells her, he says, look, I know there's other fields around here. You stay here. Don't go to any of those other fields. 
right? Because he's decided to keep an eye out. Verse nine, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after those women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. I love this, this imagery, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Boaz saw that Ruth was, he made sure that she was cared for, that she was protected. He even tells the workers to pull, to pull out sheaves of grain and drop them behind them <laughs> so that she could pick them up more easily. And he was paying them to do that. And he made sure to send her home with abundance, not just for her, but for Ruth as well. Why? Why? Because he's a godly man. Fellas, this is what godly men do. They look for opportunity to help people who need help. Right? That, that doesn't just mean somebody comes up and asks you for help. That means you are looking for people who need help. If someone shows up in your field of your life and they, you don't know who they are and they look like they're struggling, you say, who is that and what can I do to help them? Right? That's what God wants us to do. That's why Boaz is doing this. So just to explain something a little technical before we go into this next part, this idea of the kinsman redeemer is something that's going to be talked about. And, and here's what that is. There's this command in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where in this culture, okay, all land was family land. Everything was parceled out. You know, there was the Vanderplug property. There's the Vorn property. There's the Robinson property. And what happened is that land always stayed with your family, generation after generation after generation after generation, right? If you bought land from somebody else, after seven years, you had to return that land back to their family. You basically could only rent other people's land but you had your own land. And when dad died, the oldest son would take over that land. And that's just how it would go, generation after generation. So if a woman lost her husband and she didn't have any sons to take the family land, then the closest male relative would marry her, bring her into his household to provide, a, hopefully, a son who could take that family land. Right, so that that land, so that her family land would stay with her family, and wouldn't uh, you know go somewhere else. That's that's weird. We don't do that anymore. There's not any reason to do that anymore. Um, we are not we are not the people of Israel with God's given land. Um, you know, so there's, this is not a command for us anymore. But this is something that they did back then. Okay, so the things about Ruth, her foreign birth and status of a widow which in Israelite culture were definitely strikes against her, okay? Boaz sees as signs of Ruth's character and strength. He notices how hard she works. He notices how dedicated she is. And more importantly, he notices that she's really doing it for Naomi, 
You know, she's not, she's not just looking out for herself. She's looking out for her mother-in-law as well. And he's attracted to her and he shows her favor, but he doesn't act to redeem her, not yet. And so Naomi proposes a plan with Ruth for her to seek out Boaz to become her kinsman redeemer, to find a way to see if Boaz would be willing to do this thing that we just talked about, to take her into his household and to provide for her. And of all the risky moves Ruth has taken, leaving her homeland and family, traveling with Naomi to Israel to live in poverty, gleaning in fields alongside men, this alongside men, this by far is the most perilous thing she's done. She bathes, she's perfumed, walking in the dead of night onto a threshing room floor filled with drunken men to lay at the feet of a man who will now hold her future. Once again, this is seen as a highly subservient act that Ruth is willing to do, just laying at a man's feet, almost in a way like a dog might. If you have dogs, we love our dog. He lays at our feet. We like it. Except Ruth understands exactly what she's doing and why she's doing it. Somewhere along the way, she became convinced, as Naomi was, that Boaz was a man of honor. Her actions essentially forced Boaz's hand. See how strong Ruth is? Her actions forced Boaz's hand to either act and marry her or allow her reputation to be damaged beyond repair. After this night, Ruth would either be redeemed or no longer seen as a widow to be pitied with charity. She would have been a woman who laid with men or attempted to lay with a man on the threshing room floor. But Ruth had judged Boaz wisely. Ruth chapter 3, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached him quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Obviously, his feet were cold. So cruel. He turned, and there was a woman laying at his feet. You know, he's like, why are my feet cold? And then he sees her down there. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So it's in this this pericope of scripture that we see Boaz's reason for not approaching Ruth earlier about being a kinsman redeemer, it becomes evident that there's humility in the way that Boaz sees himself. Despite being wealthy and prominent in the community, he was old. Maybe we can picture him a bit like an older insurance agent, a nice guy, stable with a great 401k, has his house paid off. He gives to the temple, can always be counted on, and is maybe slightly balding in the back. Probably the kind of guy that gets overlooked by women who would prefer a young guy whose looks make their stomachs flip. He assumed this was the case for Ruth. He didn't see himself as someone she would look to 
besides for provision in his fields. Never in his wildest dreams did he imagine this young woman, so filled with courage and strength, would see him as a husband. But their character is matched toe-to-toe. They are both people of substance, and that is what draws them together. Chapter 4, verse 13 says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The, woman's, the women said to Naomi, I love this, right? The women, who are these women? Just women who are around, you know? The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And this is a great statement. Do you think that we sometimes, we don't see God's provision in what he's already given us? You know, Naomi already had Ruth, even though she had lost her husband and her sons. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth is David, King David's great-grandmother. So here's what we can learn. The story of Boaz and Ruth is proof that God is a romantic. Love is just not, it's not just part of his divine character. Romance is not something that he has just planned for you and me. It interests him. He feels it and likes to experience it like us. It's part of what it means to be made in his image. And what a beautiful picture of restoration and provision for Ruth, for Boaz, and for Naomi. You know, Naomi's provided for even though in the, you know, things are so bleak in the beginning. Right? You know, she travels back to Israel just, just hoping there's some way to get by. Ruth abandons everything she knows to follow her for whatever reason. And God provides for her. She just happens into the field of the greatest guy in town probably. Doesn't get taken advantage of, doesn't get hurt and gets married, has a child. It's provided for. And Boaz, I just, this doesn't get talked about a whole lot. It's always like Boaz the hero. But man, I tell you, that night that Boaz, she laid at his feet and he's like, wait till morning, I'll handle this. He did not sleep. He was so excited that she was wanting to marry him. And he took care of business right away. But Ruth, Ruth was God's provision for Boaz, who was alone. It's just amazing how God takes this story that starts out so bleak and he, he turns things around. You see his, his providence, how, how he's working to, to work evil things into good. The story endings for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are amazing, but listen, they didn't happen without difficult faithfulness and hard decisions. None of these, these three, they didn't know what the outcome would be. They had to make very hard choices. They had to decide to be faithful when faithfulness was hard. 
but God was faithful too. This is a great story to remember when we are in one of the many valleys of our lives. Listen, God is not absent even when he's silent. God is not absent even when he's silent. He's involved in my life and yours. He's invested. He's working to shape our character and redeem what is meant for evil or for harm into good because he loves us. You and I are Jesus's Ruth. We're the quote-unquote foreigner from bad circumstances. And Jesus is the one who loves us, takes us into his family, becomes our redeemer. We were brought into his family from the outside. And it is his desire to protect and to send us home with bountiful provisions. We will certainly face hardships, but they pale when we consider the great love with which Christ loves us and the great jealousy from which he watches over us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your redeeming love of us, your bountiful provision, your presence with us through difficult times. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.